Well, again, good morning. Welcome. Uh, so glad that you're here with us at the Olathe campus of Christ Community Church. My name's Nathan. Uh, I serve as the, the campus pastor here. Uh, and and let, me, let me just start off by telling you a little bit about my, my first preaching gig, okay? Uh, so it was a long time ago. It was back uh, when I was in college. I was 20 years old. Uh, it was at a retirement community uh, on the north, north side of, of Chicago, I, I preached there uh, every Sunday for, for four semesters. And, and so I would, I would take the, the train up north to this place, me and a couple of other students, a couple of girls, they would, they would lead music, and we would do our best to just sort of pull off a passable worship service, right? Um, I'm sure it was awful, but you know, people came, and, and we, we were there. Um, that, you should be thankful I probably got at least some of my worst sermons out of my system uh, before I got here. So, and I learned some really important lessons, things that every young preacher uh, needs to learn. Like, first of all, maybe the most important rule at all is that no matter what you do, uh, no matter what you say, some people are just going to sleep, right? Um, some of you, right? Uh, you, you show up here like you haven't slept all week, right? So good night, rest well. I can see you. You may not know who you are, but I know who you are. Um, so whatever. I'm, I'm used to it, I guess. Started there. More, more seriously, I, it, was a, it was an environment where uh, very quickly we, we realized that, you know, we'd come back the next week and there would be times when somebody was missing uh, and they, they weren't going to come back. Uh, and, and it was one of the times, you know, early on there in my life where I began to, to realize that for some people, when you get to a certain point in your life, for some, you just sort of start waiting to die, right? So I've thought about that a lot since. I mean, again, this was, this was years ago, um, but a lot of times this, is, this has come back into my mind, this, this idea. In fact, just last week, Kelly and I, we were out on a date, um, and I asked her, you know, the very, very romantic and inspiring question, uh, something like, "Hun, uh, does it ever feel like we're just sort of sitting around waiting to die? I'm a real peach to be married to. Um, but she, she, she knows how to humor me. And, and I, don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe for some of us, it's just even all the stuff in the news this week about Robin Williams, right? And just how that, I mean, there are certain stories that just grab us and, and touch us so deeply. You think, why, how are we just sort of waiting around? Do you know what I mean? Like, is my life really all that different from those in a, in a retirement community, right, spending their final days playing shuffleboard and crossword puzzles. How am I really all that different? And kids, it may feel to some of you like you're going to live forever. I still feel that way, right? Um, but as my good friend reminded me that just recently, that when I turn 35 next, or this October, in just a couple of months, that I will be closer to 70 than to birth, right? Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate that. It's really encouraging. Everybody here is now doubling their age and realizing, oh, crud, that's true. I'm closer to that than that. Uh, it's a haunting reality, right? We just keep aging. And, and one of the things that fascinates me most about the human race, truly, is that we all live as if it matters. Every one of us. I mean, regardless of, of, what, of what you believe, we all live as if our, our, our lives matter, as if our, our choices count for something. Well, at the same time, I think many of us wrestle with that same question I asked, I asked Kelly. Are we just sort of passing time until we expire? I mean, you can't really know what life is for. Um, you, can't, you can't really know if life counts unless you know what, what life is for, right? 
And, and yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a pastor. I, I, know, I know the Sunday school answer here, and I, and I believe that the Bible tells us what life is for. And so, yes, life counts, but, but, but what is it for, really? Family? I'm sure, yeah. But they are going to grow up and leave. Work? Sure. But one day, most of us will be unable to work. Money? Now you're just going to leave that to those kids anyway, right? Love? Yeah. But everybody will let you down at some point. I mean, what if at the end of the day, my life just sort of counts for nothing? At the end of my 75 years, right? Is anybody else like kind of afraid of that? At the end of that, that time, you're, you're still going to be left with that question, what, what is it all for? Okay, so now that I've got us all just so glad that we came to church today. Um, I love doing that. So everybody's just so cheery, right? Instead of communion, we'll be handing out Xanax in a little bit. Don't worry about it. We'll be fine. Um, but let me, let me say loud and clear, okay? Here's what I think Jesus is saying. It's not all for nothing. And if you were listening to the, the passage that we heard read just a few minutes ago, you may feel a little bit lost, right? Jesus coming back, sheep, goats, heaven, hell. Maybe you're afraid that the sermon's just going to go from bad to worse, right? From life is meaningless to oh goody, we get to talk about hell for a while. But what Jesus is saying here, the overarching message that honestly both clobbers me in the face as well as gives me incredible hope. It's exactly, I think, what every one of us longs for deep within, right? The thing that we keep fighting for in life is that it's not all for nothing. And Jesus gives us three reasons here. It's not all for nothing because history is moving, because judgment is coming, and because life is never-ending. Now, this is the final week of our series together. This, this summer, if you've been with us, we've been asking the question, does it really matter about the, the core beliefs of the Christian faith? Does it matter what we believe about all these different things? And now, this morning, does it matter what we believe about the end? Well, if you want your life to count, you have to know what life is for. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 25. So the first reason that Jesus gives us for, for holding on to any semblance of meaning and purpose in life, the first reason he gives us is because history is moving. It's going somewhere. Now we're only going to focus on 31 through 46 here, but this is the, the conclusion of a lengthy section of Jesus teaching his disciples shortly before his, his execution, right? Just that, that very week of his death, teaching them about the, about the end. He knows that he's going to leave, and he wants his followers, beginning with them and continuing with us, to live for a purpose bigger than 75 years. And so he says to them in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now the Son of Man, that's one of Jesus' nicknames common throughout the Gospels. Uh, and, and he's saying here that he will come back, that he will establish his throne. His disciples think, and they want it to be right now, right then, right? They don't want him to die. They want his throne, his kingdom, his rule immediately. But Jesus says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go away. I'm going to die, but I will return. And, and he teaches them that when he comes back, it's going to be very different from his debut. 
Instead of as a helpless baby, he's going to return, he says, with all the glory of God. Instead of hanging on a cross, he's going to end up sitting on a throne, he says. And we don't know when. In fact, in the previous chapter, Jesus told his disciples that even he doesn't know when. And I love it every time I hear, you know, some nut with some prediction for the end of the world, right? It seems like every time you turn around, and I, and I always think in that moment, okay, so you've got it figured out, right? Jesus, the Son of God, at least while he was on earth, didn't even know when, but I'm sure you've got it figured out, right? Anyway, so put away your charts for a little while, and here's what he's saying. We don't know when it's going to happen, but he promises that it will happen, It could be 10,000 years from now. We don't know. People of every generation have thought that it was their generation was the last or is getting close, but that's been for 2,000 years. Or it could happen before I finish this sentence. It's worth a try, but it could, right? We believe that together, don't we? So history is moving, and, and we, don't, we don't know when, but we, we know what. And that's what's really important that Jesus communicates here, that when he comes, he will come as both king and judge. That's the idea of, of the throne, right? To rule over all, to set this world to rights, to make me right, and to make all things new. So history is, is moving, and with, without this, I mean, think about it, without this, what would it all be for? Just an endless cycle Living and dying, no hope of real change, no hope of of resolution or of answers. Just endless nothing. One of the most powerful examples of this that I know know of is from the play After the Fall. Uh, It was written by the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning playwright uh, Arthur Miller. Um, And and it's one of the the characters in the the play reflecting back on his life at the end of his life. And here's, here's what he says. For many years, I looked at life like a case at law. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. Many have called this the most autobiographical of, of Miller's work. It was written just two years after, after the tragic uh, death of his wife, Marilyn Monroe. And, and what, is he, what is he saying here? He's saying that if, if, life, if life goes nowhere, right, and there's no judge at the end, no matter what the verdict is, which I think is just so interesting, no matter what the verdict, then it's all just pointless. But Jesus says, he, the king, will return. And whether that excites you or terrifies you, if it's true, it means that life is not for nothing. So I've got to ask myself, I've got to ask ourselves, 
Am I living on the edge of my seat? Do I, do I actually believe and even expect that he could return at any moment? Because, you know, I think there's three ways we tend to approach this, right? I mean, for some of us, we hear this, Jesus is coming back. It just sounds way too weird, way, I mean, strange. We've been waiting 2,000 years. I mean, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you are, and it's just maybe you've been so influenced by some really terrible Christian movies, right? You've seen Thief in the Night or Left Behind, or uh, maybe you're familiar with the new HBO series, The Leftovers, right? Where it's just sort of, it's too weird to, to, even, to even begin to embrace. But it, and I, I get that. I, I really do. Um, But if history isn't going anywhere, why do you still live as if life matters? Standing there before an empty bench. And and others of us, maybe we're not so weirded out, maybe it just kind of freaks us out, right? It just gives us a little bit, a sense of fear or terror. Even as, even as Christians, right? Maybe, maybe you think, you know what, this distance, we kind of like that, right? Jesus, don't come, don't come too close. Or, or maybe you just think, I've got more I want to do here. I don't want this to end now. And the reality is we're just so comfortable with the status quo, aren't we? And then there are others of us. Some of you, and you, you sit on the edge of your seat. You can't wait. And you live differently now. That's the important thing. It's not a matter of just sitting back and waiting and hoping and letting life pass you by, but it changes the way you live. It motivates everything and fills you with hope because you know it is not all for nothing. One of my old professors writes, the ready person's life is characterized by the selfless service to others. That's what it looks like to be ready which really is, is where Jesus goes next. Because after he, he starts this, this sentence here, this, this passage with, with, he's coming back, he, he says what he's going to do. And basically, if, if King Jesus is returning, here's what he's saying. There are, there are those who embrace his kingdom, even now, and there are those who, who reject his kingdom. Uh, there are those who will submit to him as king and follow him as their king, even now in this moment, in this life. And there are those who, who refuse, right? Who want to simply be their own king, right? Their own God, their own master of their lives. And what he's saying here, he gets to, uh, that essentially there are sheep and there are goats. And he says, sheep go to heaven. And as we all know, right? Goats go to hell, right? So yeah, it does get a little weird um, here. But, but hang with me because Jesus is still making the same point. That life matters. And it matters because history is moving, and it matters because judgment is coming. Look at verse 32. So Jesus says, Before him, talking about himself, before him as the king, before him will be gathered all the nations. I mean, notice that. Jesus comes, when he comes, he comes for everyone, for all people. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left, and cut to the chase, go down to verse 46, and these, the left, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, so goats go to hell. It's not a joke. It's it's a metaphor, okay? Uh, And just for the record, kids, metaphor means 
Goats don't really go to hell, right? Okay, I can just picture you next time you're at the uh, petting zoo, right? Uh, It's a metaphor. Jesus is painting a a picture uh, of what reality looks like, what his reality looks like. The point that he's making is is just as a, a shepherd separates two kinds of animals, right? He separates the the sheep out from the goats. In the same way, Jesus is saying there are only two kinds of people in the world. That's it. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus as king, right? He's either your king or he's not your king. There's no no llamas in this story, right? You you are either a sheep or a goat. Jesus couldn't make that any clearer. There's, There's no option left for us but these two. And what he's saying here as he continues, although entrance into God's kingdom, right, is only through faith, through belief in him, no, no good work could ever possibly rescue any of us. We could never be good enough to earn our way in. And yet true faith, he's saying, always leads us to action. Look at, look at verse 41. We're going to start with the bad news first, okay? So we'll skip down a little bit if you're following along. Verse 41, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Yikes. And he explains. He says, for I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I was naked, sick, in prison, and you did nothing. He says. What? Jesus, when? He would never do that to you. Verse 45, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me. Mm. Okay, so let me get this straight. It's 21st century America. Here we are. Do we still believe in hell? Really? I mean, haven't we, haven't we just sort of graduated past that and the, and the sc- scope of theology and all of that? Haven't we moved on? Do we still believe in judgment? But before you discard what Jesus is saying, keep in mind, I'm pretty sure we all agreed up to this point. I mean, maybe, maybe not about Jesus' return. I get that, okay. Um, but about the fact that life has meaning. That, that your choices, my decisions, my actions matter. That it, that it actually matters whether you love your kids or abandon them. That it matters. That it actually matters whether or not you're the kind of person who takes life or gives life. I mean, you believe, don't you, that there is objective right and objective wrong? And even if you say you don't, we all live as if we do. I mean, survival of the fittest takes from the underdog and celebrates it, right? Even to their own destruction. It says rape if you have to in order to reproduce, if you're the powerful, strong one. And yet everything within us reviles against that longs for something better, for something, for something more. I mean, as one of my, my favorite, one of my favorite theologians, the great late Johnny Cash, um, says one of his songs, I love this, so powerful, he says, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, Run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. And while part of me believes that hell is actually the place where you're forced to read uh, comments 
on internet web pages. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's got to be there, right? Um, I couldn't resist, right, with this music video. There's 20 million views on, on YouTube, and right at the top, the, the top uh, comments on this were very similar. Basically, something along the line, you know, religion is not for me, but I love this song. Well, of course you love this song. This song's awesome, right? Johnny Cash, it's, it's good, but it's more than that. It's that we long for judgment because we long for meaning. We long for life to matter, to know that it matters. And without judgment, there is no meaning. I mean, Miroslav Volf, great theologian, uh, he survived the genocide in, in Bosnia, if you can imagine that. He sees this, this whole issue through his cultural lens very, very differently. He says uh, that belief in a God who doesn't judge evil, listen to this, belief in a God who doesn't judge evil is only possible, he writes, in the quiet of a suburban home. It's the only place it's possible, he says, because we're just so insulated. We don't, we don't see, I mean, the true evil that we see, it's, it's, on, it's on the news. We don't feel it. We don't experience it. But he writes, in a sun-scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, where parents are, were literally, truly forced to watch their own kids raped and murdered, how can they not believe in judgment? Because how could God possibly love those victims if he doesn't judge those perpetrators? If there is a God and he's okay with all that, he deserves hell more than any of the rest, doesn't he? I mean, a God who doesn't judge, he can never be worshipped, never be trusted, never be loved. I mean, people, I hate, I hate the idea of hell. I do. I mean, something within me, right? The, the idea of agony and separation of, of people apart from Christ. And for those of us who believe this, right, if we say, yes, this is part of what it means to believe in a good and gracious God, we, we ought to believe it with, with weeping. I mean, some don't, right? Some trumpet around the idea of hell as if they've got it figured out that they're somehow better, that they, they get to go to heaven because they're smarter or, 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 you know, live more moral lives, which is ridiculous. This is what we all deserve, every one of us, because we have rebelled against our God. It ought to tear us up to believe in the idea of, of hell to think that there are people that you know that I know, people in our schools and in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, people in this room who will spend eternity consciously separated from their one chance at real love. It ought to tear us apart. But listen, if you want a God who actually cares, who actually looks at the outrages within our world and and gets more angry about them than, than you do, then you've got to believe in a God who's going to do something about it. And Jesus, more than anybody else in Scripture, talks about a place called hell. So actually, deep down, I don't think it's really that hard for us to believe in hell, theoretically, you know, for those really bad people that we'll never meet. It's pretty easy for us to get behind that. What's hard for me to believe is that people I know will go there good people, nice people, people people who are way nicer than I am will go there. Because it can't be about how good you are. It just, it just can't, or, or something that we could, we could possibly earn. I mean, God is holy and perfect and, and righteous, and none of us even come close. And besides, the, the, the minute you start saying, well, you have to be, you know, you can't do these things, but you can't do things, where's the line on that? I mean, really, because, you know, I can look at my life and say, yeah, I'm fine, okay, I haven't committed adultery. I have here. I, ha- I haven't uh, committed murder. 
Have killed anybody? Well, I haven't here, believe me. I've never stolen anything, at least, I mean, not, not really stolen anything, right? I envy almost all the time. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, I have declared war against this God who made me and left to my own devices. I would have killed him long ago. I would have. I mean, besides, I mean, if you think about it, I think it's about being good enough. Look at the list that Jesus gives. They didn't give the thirsty a drink of water. Really? But it's not our actions that send us to hell. It's not what it is. It's not our, it's not our behavior. It's our refusal to embrace him as king. This one who is going to come to sit on the throne. It's, it's a refusal to, to recognize his kingship, to submit to him. And when we refuse the thirsty a drink, we're refusing Jesus. And hell is exactly what I deserve. And listen, no one will be in hell who truly wants to be in heaven. No one will be in hell who truly wants to be in heaven. Because heaven, we, we translate that as a, just simply a place of, of you know, endless pleasure and a, and a great reunion, right? Merely paradise. But heaven is the place where God is. It's the place where, where Jesus is. Is king, and if you have spent your entire life running from him, hiding from him, going over to his house is the last place you want to be. I mean, it could be the last gracious thing that God does, right? To allow us what we've been asking him to do from the very beginning, to be eternally separated from him. And it should pain us to say that, but nobody will be in heaven who wants to be, or who doesn't want to be if we truly want to be, if we truly understand that this is the place where our great God lives. And so, so ask yourself, I've got to ask myself, am I living as if hell is for more than just goats? More than just the really, really bad people that I don't like or disagree with? And, and here's what I mean by that. Two things. First of all, if we believe in hell, a place of ultimate judgment, it ought to move every one of us to repentance. Every one of us, no matter who you are, where you've been, to to recognize that my sin is that bad. That I have so rejected my God that this this is what I deserve. My sin is that ugly. It ought to turn all of us away from our sins. It ought to to land all of us on our knees, right, before this God begging for his forgiveness. And if you haven't submitted your life to this king, who will come. If you reject his kingdom, you will reject it forever. Pray to him. Turn, turn away from your sins. Submit to him as king. And the other thing here, for, for those of us who have done this, there should be an urgency with these words, right? I mean, it ought to tear us up knowing that this is, that this is true. We ought to long to help others meet Jesus, to meet this king. The reality is, I prefer to believe that it's just for the goats. Just easier that way, right? I mean, I'm being honest here. I don't, I don't want to talk about this with my neighbors or the people at school. I don't, I don't want to think about this and in, in inviting them to, to church. That's going to be awkward or, or difficult. I don't want to take the time to build relationships. Honestly, I just don't want to love them. Which, ironically, makes me guilty of the exact same crimes that Jesus lists here. Because they're all about our refusal to love. And so before we move on, picture just one person 
that you can take just one next step with. I mean, it could be as small as just, just meeting a neighbor you haven't met yet. Or if you've done that, maybe it's inviting them to church or, or just getting to know them as friends and letting them get to know you and get to know this, this intimate part of your life. Picture them, even now in this moment, who are they? It's not all for nothing. So history is moving, judgment is coming, and life is never-ending. Because this passage is actually meant to be encouraging. At this point, you may have forgotten that, right? Um, but, but think about it, right? Because this is Jesus' final week. His disciples, they are about to feel more alone than they've ever felt in their entire lives. They're going to feel as if everything they've done, everything that they've given their lives to, devoted these last few years to, that it's all been for nothing as Jesus is nailed to that cross. And they're going to be persecuted down the road, tor- tortured and even murdered. But Jesus wants them to know that death will not have the last word. The pain, the sin, and even the injustice that will be committed against it, it will not have the last word. And so in verse 34, going back, Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And you got to stop right there. If you think about what Jesus said about hell, right? He said hell was prepared for the devil's for the devil and his angels. It was never meant for us. Don't miss that. It was never meant for us as humans. But those who believe, he says, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world, prepared for you and me. I mean, before, before the world even began, he started this, this prep work. A, a place where Jesus really, truly is king. And, and if you read the, the rest of the story, right, you get to the book of Revelation. There's this guy named John. He was one of Jesus' early uh, followers. And he has this, this vision that what God is going to do is he, heaven and earth are going to be one one day. That, that heaven is going to be here on this, this remade earth and that we will get to, to live and reign with this, this king who rescues us. But we water it down, don't we? I mean, I do, right? We tend to either go in like one or two of two extremes, right? We either think of, of heaven as this eternal church service. And let me say, I'm a pastor, and that just sounds awful, right? I mean, who wants that? No, nobody wants, if that's your view of, of the afterlife, no, no wonder you don't want to go there. No wonder you're not looking forward to it. That's, that's, not, that's not the picture we're given. But the other extreme that we go to, right, is it's just sort of this, this hedonistic place of self-centered rest, right? Retirement on crack with a reunion sort of thrown in, right, with all the people that you love. And while heaven is, is not less than those things, it's so much more. Heaven is nothing if not the place where God lives. The one who made us, who rescues us, who, who knows me better than I even know myself, and still he loves me. And that we get to go and be with him. The, the one that we were created for, to be in relationship with, that we will see him and know him through his son Jesus, the, the one that we were made for. And it's a place where all the wrongs will be made right. I mean, all that you've lost in this life, everything you've missed out on, everything you've given up, and some of you, let's, some of you have lost a lot, haven't you? It'll be redeemed. Not, not just a consolation prize, you know, 40 virgins for your trouble. That's not our story, people restoration, where all of those things will actually, truly, somehow, in ways we can't understand, the the deepest grief or heartache that you've ever experienced, it will be made right somehow in that moment, right forever. 
and I will be made whole again. It's not all for nothing. For I was hungry, Jesus says. I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison, and you did something about it. Thank goodness, Jesus, I don't remember any of that. When did we do that for you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Don't, don't misunderstand, Jesus isn't saying that we earn it. And if we're, if we're kind and loving and good, then we get to go on this path. That's not what he's saying at all. He's talking about embracing this kingdom, right? The only way to receive this life is through faith. But this faith is in a king. And this king is going to establish a kingdom. And this, this kingdom comes with, uh, brings with it a way of, of life characterized by loving what Jesus loves, loving the least. And to refuse the least is to refuse the king. So one more question, one that haunts me, so you're welcome. Am I actually living beyond my 75 years? Am I, am I, am I actually living now as if I'm going to, to exist forever? with this great and grand and glorious end in mind. Loving what Jesus loves. Loving the least. And when you care for the hungry, the sick, the stranger, the poor, the oppressed, it is not for nothing. And so who are the least in your life? Come on. You know who they are, right? The kid that nobody talks to at school. The coworker that nobody, nobody likes. The person maybe on, on your street that just obviously, you know, struggles to afford living on your street. Or maybe it's that really needy person in your community group or the annoying one. But loving them is not for nothing. Jesus says it's just like loving him. It, it's just like handing the Savior of the world a cup of cool water. So who is that person? Or, or those people? in your life. Picture them. And whose kingdom are you living in? So what are you going to do about it? You know, this also means that the work you do, all of it, right? In the office, at home, kids, at your school, it's not for nothing that those, those things, your work, I mean, if you think about it, your work is the primary place in which you love your neighbor. It's one of the primary places in which you are able to love Jesus. It's not, it's not for nothing. And if you see your life as more, you can give yourself away now. Because what do you have to lose? We can give and serve and love and forgive and pursue and work because your life is not for nothing. And it's all because of Jesus' death was not for nothing. Right? I mean, that's, that's the crux of it all, the, the climax of, of all of this. I mean, showing us that history is moving, that the cross is the climax, but it's not the end. And the, the cross also shows us that judgment is coming, that my sin is that bad, that the only way God could rescue me was for him to become a man and to die on a, on a cross cruelly for me. That, that's it. That's the only way to rescue me. So it shows us that judgment coming and, and that he, the fact that he didn't stay dead, right? That he actually rose again from the dead shows us that life with him, life is never ending. That you and I can enter into his kingdom 
and embrace him as our true king through belief. That's how we enter in. And that in so doing, we get to live forever in a world made right with this God who made us. Life has meaning. Everything matters. You matter. I matter. It is not all for nothing. Let's pray. God, every one of us, I think, feels that life matters. That there's something deeply meaningful and significant about how we live, the choices that we make, the people we interact with, God. I think we, I think we all know that. And we see from you, Lord Jesus, why that is. Why we live with such purpose. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to reorient, help me to reorient my life, to be able to live in this kingdom that you, that you have created, are creating, and will create in and through us, your people, your church. God, we long to experience this. And Lord Jesus, I am so thankful that you have, not because of anything I've done, because I know what I deserve, that you have rescued me, that you've, you've spared me from judgment, from my selfishness and pride and greed that you haven't just spared us, but you've offered us life like we can't even imagine. Even, even as we talk about it, the words we come up with are so inadequate for what you have in store for those who know you. So God, with that in mind, we, we rejoice, we praise you, we, we love you. And God, for those who um, yeah, maybe aren't, aren't there yet, maybe are still thinking through what this means for them, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them as beauty, beautiful, and desirable, that they would long to live in your kingdom and to embrace you as their king. And that together we can sing and declare and rejoice in this God who loves us. For your glory we pray. Amen.